Join us for the Criterion Institute podcast as Joy Anderson, a global thought leader in business and social change, leads us through a series of discussions, interviews, frameworks, rants, and reframes that will help you better understand how to use finance as a tool for transformative systems change. Hello, I am Joy Anderson, and this is the Criterion Institute podcast. In this episode, we're actually going to draw from a conversation that I had with two amazing leaders in the field of sustainable finance back in September of 2021. Although I will say honestly, I think of this conversation so often. It was a simple day. We were simply recording a series of context sessions in advance of our conference on using finance to address gender-based violence. And I invited Daniela Armino, who was at the time at HESTA, a uh, superannuation fund or pension fund in Australia, and Gida Ayer, one of the founders <laughs> of the field of sustainable finance, the founder of Boston Common. And I joined them in a conversation about why the future matters in finance. Now, I will say, I find this conversation deliciously geeky. It dives into specific investment methodologies for being able to name potential futures that can affect the value of our investments and how we determine their materiality and why so often we get the future wrong. Enjoy. All right. Well, we welcome to a context session in the middle of convergence, which is looking at finance and the future um, and why the future matters to finance. And so I'm with two of my favorite people. Um, so Gita and Danielle, I'll give you a little chance to introduce yourselves. Gita, you want to go first? Sure. I'm Gita Ayer. I'm a founder and president of Boston Common Asset Management. We invest in global equity portfolios. We're active managers, but we're also active stewards of our capital in the sense that we engage portfolio companies to change and do better. So um, I'm delighted to be here on this panel with you. Danielle. Yes, um, I'm Daniela Jaramillo. I'm a Senior Responsible Investment Advisor at HESTA. HESTA is an Australian uh, superannuation um, or, or a pension fund. And um, we're serving um, close to 900,000 members, 80% of which are women, many of them in the healthcare sector. Um, HESTA, we, we see ourselves as long-term universal owners, which means that we are invested across the whole economy and we can't diversify away uh, from systemic risks like gender uh, inequality. So we're constantly thinking um, about this and, and, and so I'm very happy to be talking about how we think about this uh, in, in convergence. So maybe just building on that, Danielle, I mean, I think in some ways pension funds are often known or superannuation funds are, are known for a longer time horizon just because of how long you need to hold assets. So maybe just starting with you, why do you think future matters so much in finance? So I, I, think, I think you're right. We're in the business of thinking long-term. And so imagining a few, what the future might look like allows us to um, identify risks early on, risks and opportunities early on, and shape our portfolios so that we're kind of managing for those risks and then taking advantage of those opportunities. So imagining 
what the future looks like and trying to um, get uh, the most accurate um, projections in a way of what the future might look like is very important for us and for positioning our portfolio um, appropriately. Yeah, I would, I would second what uh, Daniela just said. Um, finance has a variety of metrics with which it uh, tries to assess you know, the combination of risks and opportunities, the combination of cash flows and uh, profitability, depending on the particular asset class. But the tools are generally as uh, aligned with trying to ascertain what is an appropriate value for something that is financial. And um, it could be in the form of bonds or equities or, or real estate. But essentially, I might add that factors such as gender that uh, Daniela spoke of uh, as systemic risks are most often overlooked or underestimated or misvalued in terms of timing and magnitude by conventional Wall Street analysts. And um, part of what what that leads to is a, we think, opportunity for those who can see and value these and uh, also better risk-adjusted outcomes for those who um, are able to uh, bring these in. So I, I love, you, know, you have an amazing ability to just roll through a set of brilliant, you know, and it's cash flows across asset classes and thinking about that sort of, that sort of formula of, of how does finance calculate value I'm wondering, I'm wondering if you could step back and just unpack that a little bit more, because yeah. at some point, the core of what we're getting to is, in my mind, one thing finance does, like at its core, is assigning value, right? How to price something. What's the yeah. relationship between pricing something and a picture of the future? For the most part, um, pricing something is dependent upon your view of what you're buying might be worth at some point in the future. And so it's a a funny way to talk about it, but what you're really saying is if I buy this, you know the old expression, buy low, sell high. So the idea is that if you buy something, uh, that you would then be able to sell it at a higher price or at least an equivalent price in the future. And then uh, to discount that back to the present uh, at some level. So what this does is that it forces the analyst or the potential investor to look at something and try to imagine what the future uh, would bring uh, for this particular investment. Let's say it's a company, uh, what its cash flows might look like, what its profitability, what its revenues might look like, what its cost structure might look like, what its profitability might look like. And then ultimately um, saying, I have a certain level of confidence and that level of confidence gets reflected in the way you discount that to the present. Uh, What that means is that if you have much greater confidence or uh, you think this is a slam dunk investment, you would would bring a lot of the value to the present. Your discount rate would be low. Or if you have no confidence or you think it's all over the map, I have no idea, lots of different estimates are coming in and they don't match at all. There's a lot of risk around this uh, investment then you might use a very high discount rate and uh, that would change how you view its present value. So what that do- if the present value is attractive relative to what the market is currently pricing this at, that, that is to say what the company or the stock or the house is selling for, you would make an assessment whether you want to put money into it. So you're aiming to buy things um, which are undervalued uh, most of the time. 
in the case of bonds, you have a slightly different attitude. You're looking at the likelihood that you'll get paid back, uh, which is a slightly different, more risk-oriented approach of thinking what might jeopardize the odds that I will get either the interest payments or the principal back. Right, sort of assuming, and let me just see, because it was incredibly well said, the, um, in some ways, the price isn't real, right? The price is made up by what people are calculating what it might be worth, right? Just, I own a business and I want somebody to invest in my business. Me and that investor are trying to figure out on what basis are we determining yes. what my value is. That's and right. That is part and parcel of what I think its future value will be discounted to the present, right? So Correct. how do I figure that all out? Yes. So if you think that everyone's too pessimistic, um, you know, lots of people are making these estimates, they're making too pessimistic an estimate, then you might leap in as a value investor to buy it. And conversely, if you think everybody is, uh, you know, overvaluing this, there's a bubble, you might be a seller of that asset. But in general, overall, uh, the assessment of attractiveness of sectors, economies, stocks, houses, um, any other asset is based on this uh, this sort of a framework. The belief that ultimately markets become efficient um, because many, many people with different perspectives are players in the marketplace. So what we believe is that because these risks are undervalued or misvalued, we have an opportunity to value it correctly, see things maybe a little before others do, assign it a greater probability, and uh, think, have a different uh, picture of what might be the true value of this asset. Yeah, Danielle, you want to add anything to this? I think this is a great description. Yeah, I, I, I was just thinking that um, of that concept of market efficiency and um, Gita, what you were talking about confidence, and and I, and I and I was thinking of of um, how the way and who are the people that are determining that confidence or creating the models that give you the confidence, how might their own biases be impacting their ability to truly capture a real idea of the future? Um, we, if, if, we, if we have a look at a, a lot of the way testing gets done, for example, for um, cars and, in, and accidents and, and that they're mainly tested on a male body or how many of the um, pharmaceutical companies are testing many of their products, mainly um, thinking of, of, of male bodies. And, and also considering that the financial sector is primarily dominated by uh, mm -hmm. males because that's um, it's one of the sectors where we see this more pervasive. I think what's really interesting is thinking how those biases might have influenced those levels of confidence. And, and so if um, this, this thinking of the market efficiency, how accurate it is. Um, and, and, and so in general, I believe in general ESG risks tend to be mispriced because they're difficult to value because they don't fit the mathema mathematical models that are pretty nice and they all flow and they're all perfect. And then you have ESG risks that are kind of complex and qualitative and they kind of don't really fit nicely in the grids of a model. And, and, and so in general, I think ESG risks are mispriced, 
But I think there is perhaps the thinking that gender might be doubly, doubly mispriced <laughs> because it's not only at risk that's difficult to price, but also because of this additional bias of mm. who has been creating those models. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think that's a, a place where sort of the question is, how do we step into that place and have different things matter, right? And, and this is so much of part of what we're struggling with through convergence is sort of if we want in this moment for somebody to price the risk of gender-based violence into how they see the future or price opportunities that come from a reduction in gender-based violence or an avoidance of the issue or um, avoidance of it happening, not just avoiding it 100%. And thinking about that, that sort of double, how do we want it to be baked in? And then how do we get over the bias in how people are looking at it at all? But the game on the, on the end is pretty big because the gap, how wrong they are in how they're analyzing it now could be really sizable. And what have you seen? Where have you seen gaps that were wrong before? I know, Gita, you've worked a lot in emerging markets and been so smart about pricing things in emerging markets better before other yeah. people thought. That's right. And I, I think uh, the markets uh, based upon how many participants there are and how liquid the markets are have taken on some reputation reputations of being efficient or inefficient. Um, and in relative terms, emerging markets are considered to be more inefficient. Smaller stocks are considered more inefficient, but basically they're reflecting the fact that fewer people are doing the pricing and therefore the market hasn't reached the place of uh, all that information clearing house. And also a lot of the data, just like Daniela was saying, is um, less clear, less um, there's less consensus around it. There's less um, uh, less uh, analysts are, are um, quantifying uh, in these markets. So you have a double uh, opportunity, mm-hmm. um, not even counting the gender issues that Daniela pointed out, <laughs> which is the which is the analyst's own bias. But in addition, you have kind of the financial information as well as the ESG information, both being somewhat uh, less settled in terms of consensus building, more divergence between the estimates. That's really what inefficiency uh, amounts to. But I I think there is a very important uh, point in what uh, Daniela was saying, which is that the issues pertaining to ESG, environment, social, and governance issues, uh, in which I include gender uh, underneath those, um, have been conventionally left out of financial metrics this sometimes um, because um, they've been inconvenient to uh, calibrate. They're not easy to make comparisons. They're not easy to, to uh, create uh, to um, create metrics. But we believe, and I, I believe uh, all of us around this uh, in the table are in agreement that these are um, salient. They are. Uh, uh, they will be. They are financial factors. They're just not been priced uh, in in financial terms. And indeed, uh, we have always believed that the work on ESG is our effort to complete finance. It is to uh, to um, to bring it. Um, so remember that the Financial Accounting Standards Board (FASB), which seems like uh, ancient and forever and um, and very sacred was only created in the 70s. So, you know, um, we are on a journey of uh, improving and completing uh, what companies need to measure and report on. And um, I might add that um, 
by highlighting these risks, investors such as Daniela's group are um, compelling uh, investors to look at them, take them more seriously, and start um, thinking about, thinking, create, you know, directing your creativity towards how they can be made into metrics, how, so that we have meaningful statistics. We, have, we are able to make, we are able to measure that, uh, we used to say, you know, we are able to count the things that count instead of only counting, but it's easy to count. So, so I want to tie I want to tie that out because this is where the translation I, I spend time translating between the sort of world of finance and, and folks working on issues like gender, and so it's in that moment around metrics that I think because often what a metric is in social change is looking at past performance and saying how well did you do. Metrics in finance are trying to do something a little more future oriented to say, if we're looking at these metrics going up or down, it's not just about what they're doing today and did you, right? When I write a grant proposal, the metrics I put in are my reporting about whether or not I accomplished what I said, often not what are the directions in the future, right? We could name that we wanna do that in grant writing, but the reality is, most of this is actually looking at metrics about the past, right? Have you performed as you said? Versus when you're looking at these metrics or indicators, you're, you're, you're um, I don't know what the right word is, but you're sort of, you're, you're marking them against a future that you think is happening or not, not just what's happening right now. Correct. Uh, Danielle, can you help me play this out a little bit? It's, it's that there's, there's still something, I think, when, when, as you went through that, it was like, well, we're looking at companies now with what, what they're valued, but I want to come back to this other point of how you're valuing them now is about your prediction of what they'll be worth in the future, always. Like that never leaves the calculation. Yeah. And you would only use historic data to, as a proxy for the future. Um, and exactly. everyone's probably heard that past performance is no indicator of future performance. And, and I think, we always keep that in mind. So that's why we can't just focus on the, on the past or on what's happening now. There's always, the only thing, so as I said, we are in the business of thinking long-term, not thinking of what happened yesterday. It might have helped us get where we're now, that our business and our objective is looking into the future. So the past is only relevant if it helps us indicate the future. So in that, one other tricky spot that I end up with is the difference between what's going to cause a different future and then what is correlating with a different future. Because some of these indicators are not necessarily, sometimes they are, sometimes they're not. Some of these indicators are not causal, they're simply correlative, right? That if these things go up, these things tend to go up. And those are some of those formulas that are so baked into those spreadsheets, right? more production of cardboard leads to greater increase in GDP because we know those two things correlate. I don't know, play that out for me a little bit more. So I think, first like of all, I wanna- 301. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, now I wanna pick up where Daniela uh, left off by saying that she's absolutely right that um, analysts uh, frequently at a loss for what the future might look like reach to the past for different scenarios that might come about. And that is inherently, it's useful, 
but it is also a limiting way of looking at things because we have lived in a uniquely um, unique period of bounded outcomes. Many of our tools, our models, are based upon a time when um, the range of potential outcomes was um, was bounded. And this is most apparent when you talk about things like climate change, which are cumulative and inexorable and, uh, and, and what one directional, their results, the result of the concentration of, uh, you know, uh, of carbon in the atmosphere, uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere eventually leads to something here you are, uh, again, you know, it leads to a set of outcomes that are likely to breach our familiar, comfortable models of normal distributions with mean and standard deviation type of descriptions. I'm sorry, I'm sorry if yeah, I'm going no, off statistics, but this yeah. is something from. Um, <laughs> so, um, what's happening, right? You're doing statistical right. analysis. No, like, that's right. what happens. So, right. So, what happens is that we are we tend to look at outcomes, which we can, upon reflection and considering of many of the factors that we have all been talking about that are frequently left out, we might come up with different distributions. We should be preparing for different distributions. Instead, what we tend to do, that, which means that the um, outliers may be both more extreme and more frequent. So um, the distribution of outcomes no longer is well-behaved hmm. and mappable with a mean and a set of standard deviations. So what we tend to do, you may have heard this expression, they call them tail risks. That is to say the tails of the distribution uh, are playing out or they call them black swan events. That is infrequent, high-impact events. The reality and also um, unexpected infrequent um, and high impact events. The reality is that what we should be doing is recognizing these risks and no longer treating these as uh, outlier events, but rather as baseline events that will uh, alter the uh, distribution of outcomes and indeed um, prepare for, so or prepare for disruption. So the past has never been less relevant in thinking about the future than it is now. Daniela, you want to build on that? <laughs> well, it's pretty tough. Um, it's a pretty, pretty, uh, Gita's put it in, 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 in a very clear way. I mean, what I would add to this, and, and I really want to get into thinking about climate change and how we might be able to learn from climate change, mm -hmm. because I think in general, we've, thought about economic cycles and they always kind of repeat themselves until they actually don't and and and, and so now I think what's happening with climate change is and, and I don't know if you have read but there's a new paper called the green swan which is trying to say oh actually we can't predict it if we want to but uh, it's, it's, it's only unpredictable if you don't want to look at this data and it will become a black swan if you don't look at it. And I think what's been happening with climate change and what climate has done really well is kind of setting that idea of the future and that, that scenario analysis of what a black swan might be if we don't do anything. And, and so in a way, we are 
by creating that idea of the future and positioning policy into making that future happen, we are kind of shaping what the future will look like. And so the fact that we're saying climate change, if we don't do anything, it will happen. We're anticipating all these risks. But then we're saying, no, we actually should prevent it. And so if we put policies in place, we'll prevent it. But that creates another set of risks for companies. So that we're actually influencing and creating those risks ourselves by pushing for certain policies. But the reason why we do this is because we think that the cost of not doing something will be much worse than the cost of changing those policies. And so we have, because we're saying in the future, we have this really bad thing that's going to happen. We can make it a little, uh, we can make it less bad if we implement all these policies. So because we have such a clear idea of what the future might look like, we're able as investors to say, we think this policy should happen. And, 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 and then we also see obviously policymakers saying, oh yeah, actually we don't want this to happen. So we're going to influence that. So I think that in that clear idea of the future that climate has created, in a way it's trying to help us prevent these black swans but it's also creating additional risks for people like us. And this is what we call transition risks in climate change. So it's risk created by ourselves, by, by the regulators and, and, and by, by investors uh, for companies that don't transition appropriately. So I think there's a lot to learn. Maybe I'm jumping ahead, but I think that there's a lot to learn from how climate change has been able to create this future and this scenario well, we can clearly draw where the risks will be. We're saying, oh, all these outlier events are going to happen much more often. What does this mean for our real estate? What does this mean for roads? What does this mean for agriculture? And, and we're going to have droughts. And so it makes it easier to draw the links between how companies are going to be impacted and how societies are going to be impacted. The other thing that climate has done very well is it has scientific base and consensus. And you have the mainstream, which is, um, you had, I think a, a key point in climate was when Mark Arney from the Bank of England actually said, this is a financial risk. So I think there's a few lessons to be learned about how to prevent those black swans um, and how to anticipate those by creating this future. And we can learn, gender can mm -hmm. learn a few lessons from how climate change did that. Okay, right. yeah. and what should gender do? What are the tools that we have available, I mean, you know, it's an interesting thing. Gender lacks a future. It's been one of the things that Criterion's been naming for a while, that we don't have a picture of the future of gender. We have a static, you know, in the gender-based violence world, boys will be boys. This is something we just have to live with. It's a chronic, systemic risk. Sorry, blah, blah, blah. I believe that um, there's some elements that gender issues share with climate. Daniela, that was so well said. The, the, the connections, the the belief that large investors can actually do something and that policymakers can do things, companies can do things, every, every actor almost can do something is a, is a long struggle, actually. It's hard to imagine how long it has taken. And so if we reflect on why it took so long, you see the similarities to gender, mm -hmm. which is that they are present dangers. They are poised to escalate. They tend to be dismissed by those who are in, uh, in analytical or policy-making 
or indeed financial power um, or ownership. Um, and for years, um, this was the case. And the the uh, and and then their gender leaves off from climate and moves over towards all other inequality without mobility issues that we are wrestling with. Now, I happen to live in a place where people are still debating, Daniela, whether the climate is real or not, uh, the climate change is real or not, whether it's true good science or not. But, but you know, the first trade-offs were indeed made the same way that you described, which is that will this small probability event be worth changing our whole economy? And you go, you know, Nordhaus won a Nobel Prize for saying this. So, um, so there was certainly an aspect that the, the change required would not be warranted by the small probability of this set of impacts. And that over time, what has happened is the, um, you know, that small probability, if it is devastating, uh, is actually worth preparing for. So you asked me what the future assessments are made up of. You know, there's probability, and then there's this, the magnitude of the severity of the outcomes. And, uh, and the fact that they are cumulative and that imperfect solutions today are worth more than perfect solutions tomorrow. So there's all of these are working in tandem, right? So, so if there's a small probability your house will break, burn down, you probably will buy insurance because the catastrophic outcome isn't worth gambling on, right? But, but nonetheless, uh, where I was headed with gender and its similarities uh, with climate and then the place it leaves off and goes towards sort of inequality and kind of you're talking about the people, you know, where we began, right? The people who are not at the table, the people whose life experience is not the experience of those who are making investment decisions. And the fact, and, and remember that in climate too, the global South is exactly that. Um, the top of the pyramid uh, was, had very little reasons to see the bottom of the pyramid. Um, I mean, I spoke at COP25 uh, and, um, you know, the delegations by island nations is, you know, indelible, right? I mean, sorry, COP21 in Paris. Um, and so uh, they have been making this case that to some, the outcomes are catastrophic. And it isn't a probability-weighted scenario planning thing for, for that. So what has shifted? What has shifted is the is the... Number one, the realization that outcomes may be varied, but there will be outcomes for all, uh, that our lives are interconnected, that there is indeed a uh, cumulative nature to this, and that we are, by not acting, worsening uh, the situation, and that we are also, through our um, modeling effect, spreading this type of um, consumption patterns, living patterns, indeed gender inequality patterns and racial inequality patterns, inequality without mobility in general, uh, around the world because we've become the model of. So the questioning of the financial system, the questioning, and this is again where I come back to investors such as uh, Hester where Daniela works, I give them credit for having uh, perceived of themselves just as you said, Daniela, as universal investors who can't uh, disinvest uh, and can't just walk away. You know, I spoke earlier about my choosing the things that are attractively valued versus not. I have that luxury because I built, you know, small actively managed portfolios. Large investors like Hester own all the assets and therefore their choices are actually primarily to be involved in shaping the future. And to me, that is the most exciting 
set of developments because for a very, very long time, we financial professionals were taught that our job is to assess with your mind and then pick great management teams, then leave them alone to do their job. Okay, look how far we've come for saying, A, you know, uh, you know, we are uh, not just going to divorce head from heart. And, and, and you know, and in fact, we were taught if you use uh, your heart, it makes you a worse financial professional, right? You, you are um, unable to, uh, to think more completely. I'm sorry, am I freezing or were you, uh, did you freeze? No, you're freezing, but it's really dramatic. And your voice, yeah. your voice is coming through clearly. The freezing is just, is yeah. just elegant. the visuals. <laughs> yeah. So essentially, what, what we, where, how far we've come is that we believe that we are improving finance, that we're making it more complete, that we are bringing in variables, that we will create metrics that are meaningful, that over time they may not be exactly parallel with these. But, uh, you know, this information, just like financial information, is provided to you by companies that indeed checking, verifying, et cetera, requires an ecosystem of ambitious uh, companies or activists um, and engaged shareholders and that we create a race to the top and that modifying and changing and guiding companies' risk uh, management as well as reward-seeking or opportunity-seeking is indeed a part of an engaged stewardship model and that this is something that we are and empowered to uh, demand of them because uh, it is the time frame of the beneficiaries of these assets that matters. And so we are able to demand accountability, transparency, long-term orientation. We are able to provide that as feedback. I mean, the fight against it is still ongoing here, I might add, the efforts to leave out ESG <laughs> factors and uh, you know, curb the engagement uh, opportunities uh, is still ongoing. But nonetheless, that, so to me, this creates an avenue to bring in emerging or not even emerging, just as yet unpriced or as yet appropriately valued risks, uh, which have um, both the characteristics of being risky, um, potentially damaging of reputation, of brand, of uh, legal settlements, of um, of community consent, you know, all kinds of risks can be modeled. And then conversely, uh, opportunity in terms of inclusion and of, uh, and, uh, and I think, I think this gives us the tools uh, to draw some from climate, but some from also S factors to, um, and governance to um, lean in. Uh, we have many more tools today. Yeah, absolutely. Daniela, you want to, that was, that was, I could listen to that seriously. Thank you. <laughs> so in the nod to what you all can do and, and recognizing, I can't believe we've just been talking for 30 minutes, 35 minutes or something, but thinking about um, as, as Gita teed up your role, any final thoughts on that? I think um, there's one specific thought. And, I, and when I introduced myself, I didn't say how many funds under management we had, but I said, we serve close to 900,000 people. And in the end, the reason, and, and, and Gita, you, you rightly put it as mind and heart, that I think we can even, if we want to talk mainstream and we don't want to involve the heart because sometimes that gets us in trouble and we have a fiduciary duty, we think with the mind, and I think of the ultimate shareholder in those companies, which are those 900,000 members, regardless of how much 
money they have in their accounts, we're looking after their future financial well-being. That's what we're committing to. And that means not only how much money they have in their accounts, but what can they do with that money? And if they are not able to have water or if they're not able to have rights because of what that money has done along the way, that's not looking after the financial future of our members. So I think, and, and something that I also want to say along the lines of we need to get gender to be spoken by the mainstream. We might not like what the mainstream, we might not think that the mainstream is, um, the mainstream is, is equal, but the mainstream, which is, and it might be at this point very male dominated, but if we want to achieve change, we need to be able to speak the language that the mainstream and the powerful do. And I think this is where it is key that we put gender in that category. So thinking about the future is part of thinking about the mainstream. Thinking about indicators and the right indicators is part of that. Um, and being able to link to risk and being able to link to performance and to opportunities. Help us make our case. Well, I think that's just, I mean, it's just like the tools that we've got that we need to focus on are, it's just so well said, like what is that future that we're creating indicators against? Right, not just indicators of current inequality, but they have to be indicators against something in the future that is a clear and compelling picture, which I think we don't we don't have, right? I mean, the dominant mainstream around gender in gender lens investing is how many women on boards. There isn't a here is the thing that happens. I mean, there's a little bit of here's what will happen in performance in an individual company. Um, but we haven't created that picture of what are all the factors that we need to be looking at against this picture. And I think gender-based violence as a kind of systemic issue, it might not be the only part of that picture. And, and you know, it might be that, that gender-based violence is an indicator of another picture that's about gender equality and that it isn't the picture in and of itself. But that, that need to have both of those pictures. Not just that. And then, yeah. I, I don't know if, if we have time for this, but Gita made me think of something when she was mentioning the, the island states that are already being impacted by climate change. I think that it is important to think of these future um, indicators, but also painting a picture, thinking from a behavioral finance perspective and just a behavioral. Sometimes it's easy for us when we have a clear, literally a picture of what might happen, what might happen in the future if we don't do it. So when we see pictures of what's happening in small island states that are already suffering the, the, the issues of climate change and their houses are underwater, their economies are gone because they don't have land to produce. Uh, and when you see all the refugees coming from those islands and, and you see that in the news, you're like, oh, we are risking becoming bad. If we don't do something, that is what's going to happen in the future. I think with gender, we can even look up at what's happened um, in, in certain countries where women end up being disenfranchised and, and what's happened in Afghanistan or what's happened in Iraq or even in Cambodia when, when many academics were forced to send, be sent to the fields. And, and, and what happened to those societies and those economies? So how can we use pictures of the present to model what that future will look like. And I understand the need of, of making that link of specific metrics and indicators, but sometimes thinking from a behavioral perspective 
to get this on the map, a picture literally of what the future might look like might have a stronger impact. And they are, they are intertwined. Remember the climate, you're, you're exactly right. I mean, we need to use the examples available to us, but like further devaluing women escalates gender-based violence, but also escalates climate change. Mm-hmm. And conversely, addressing, uh, revaluing or highly valuing women uh, has the opposite effect and draw down, you know, for example, called out those, right? So, so the, the, the reasons for our um, current focus within the United States um, about addressing racial injustice and recognizing that really we're talking about environmental justice, not just environmentalism, um, and, and that we need to also call out gender injustice within it, is kind of hooked a little bit into the belief that, um, just as you d- described, you know, the, um, the systemic, ordinary, analytical, not at all dramatic things that have colluded to create a persistent inequality in outcomes, right? So we fixed the rules, but we didn't fix any of the implementations. A lot of what we say about that can be said for gender. So I look at, um, I mean, it may take a few more tries. I mean, uh, Black Lives Matter has been there for a while and Me Too has been there for a little while. I mean, I, I, uh, I think the, might we use this moment to call out not just diversity, equity, inclusion, we're calling out anti-racism. Might we call out anti-gender bias uh, as, a, as a ask? So just as we are able to use the existing poor outcomes to portray what risk might look like, might we be able to portray what reward might look like? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so to me, would that transition? So there's a part of me that I think you need either fear or greed. And I'm, I'm saying let's use both uh, in terms of um, what might be the opportunity from it. Just mathematically, inclusion of women in the workforce, uh, fully productive or quantifying unpaid work, et cetera, you're, you're aware of this, enhances um, outcomes. And therefore, companies that have solved this um, have gone on to be better valued companies. I'm a fan of creating races, a race to the top. And um, as important as it is to call out the poor actors, to me, the, the asp- because if we count on fines and uh, uh, to, to get us to where we need to get, we just don't have the time and we, would, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't reach quickly enough. So to me, the, the picture of the uh, positive, yeah. the opportunity, uh, kind of like we've done in climate in a way, so I has great like, promise, has great yeah. promise. Great promise. And I also want to name, I think there's a, I mean, we didn't throw out this name. Here's the picture of gender that's equal to the picture of climate. And it looks like this and it tracks to these indicators. I just want to name, we're not quite there yet. I mean, gender lens investing all told is about 10 years behind climate as a development. There have been pieces around for a long time and has been significantly different. Right. I mean, we sort of, you know, compare how much research has been spent on climate finance compared to how much money has been spent 
on looking at gender lens investing, it's going to take us a while to get to that same, as Danielle said, a clear, concise, shared picture. We're just at the beginning of figuring that out, but I think is what's amazing about what both of you shared is let's think about what we need, right? And let's let's name what we need to get beginning done so that we can get to that picture so that we can more clearly bake gender into the mainstream, the core of finance in how it works and, and how do we get there? Um, and it will take all kinds of effort. So we're sort of continuing to say convergence, all of these will happen, but I, I just really wanted to highlight and I am, I was listening to this conversation thinking, I am so honored to get to do the job that I get to do to talk to two women like you. Like this was just amazing in terms of your thoughts um, and, and what needs to get done. I, I think it's a call to action. It is not an answer yet, but that's okay because we just have work to be done. And it's a good thing that there's a whole bunch of folks who are super smart and will figure this out. So I just want to thank both of you so much. And um, so it was really a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. To learn more about our work, visit us at criterioninstitute.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Your reviews help our podcast reach a wider audience. Thanks for listening.